All right. Speaking of Tennessee, let's just get started. I'll tell you a story. Uh, when I was growing up, um, at least where I lived, uh, I, li- I, li- I lived, but we- I didn't live in the projects, but I lived between the projects. There was some over here, and there's some over here, and our house is kind of in the middle. And so nobody in our neighborhood, nobody in, in our area had a, a swimming pool uh, in their backyard, and not where I grew up at least. In Johnson City, there was a public swimming pool uh, that I went to every day. You know, it was a big deal back then to have a, a membership, and you have my little card and my little picture on it, and, and every day during the summer, I walked to the swimming pool, and just, just that's where I lived during the summertime. Uh, I can still picture what that swimming pool was like. In fact, it's still there today, or last time I was in Johnson City, which was years ago, uh, it was still there, still operational. Uh, but the swimming pool had basically three sections to it. There was the long Olympic-sized swimming pool, you know, with the lanes, typical long swimming pool. Started out at three feet, then went down to four feet, then in the middle it was five feet, then back up to four, four and then up to three. So it, it was a typical long Olympic-sized swimming pool. And, and then over on, let, let's just say that, that this is the pool. Well, let's just say right here. This is the pool, all right, this long swimming pool. Over on this side, over in this section, was the 12-foot diving board area. As I got older, I spent a lot of time there as a, 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 a short dive. What would you call that? Small dive. A small diving board, and then there was the high diving board, all right? And, and so I spent a lot of time on the diving boards, and that, that was earlier. But then over on this side, here's the long pool. Over on this side, it was a kiddie pool. I, I, I don't remember being in the kiddie pool. Maybe I was at some time, but let's just pretend for the sake of this illustration. Uh, I want you to imagine that that, that I'm there, I'm four years old, and I'm in the kiddie pool, and it's separated, of course, from the long pool. Uh, and I want you to imagine I'm four years old, and, and, and I'm there, and it's a hot summer day, and I'm playing in the kiddie pool, and I'm just loving it. You know, I'm happy in the kiddie pool. And my dad is in the big pool, and he calls me by name. Keith, come over here. And so I get out of the pool, and I run over to the big pool, and he says, jump in. Now, I'm four years old, and the big pool looks really big to a four-year-old, right? And so the water I know is over my head, and I can't swim. And by the way, this was before, what are the the things they put on your arm? Swimming. This was before swimmies. We didn't have swimmies back then. I don't know how anybody survived back in those days. We didn't have swimmies. And so just imagine being in the, dad's in the big pool, I know the water's over my head. I can't swim. He wants me to jump in, but I'm scared. And then he stands in the five foot, and he puts out his hands like this, and he says, jump in and, and what? What does he say? Jump in. Yeah, and I'll catch you. Now, I'm a little four-year-old guy, and I hesitate, and I want to, and my dad's in there, and I want, I want to be there, and I hesitate, and, and eventually I get up my courage, and I, I jump out. I jump into his arms, and I jump into the water. Now, I've just described for you the essence of faith, and you're thinking, yeah, the leap of faith. I get it. I know all about that. kind of wish I'd stayed at home if this is what it's all about. I, under- <laughs> I understand the leap of faith. If you think that's what that story is about, then you've missed the whole point of the story. Leaping into my dad's arms is an act of faith, but it's not the essence of faith. So let me try this story again. This time I'm going to let you be in, this, in the kiddie pool. 
I'm going to tell you the same story, just a little bit differently. You're four years old, and you're playing in the, over here in the kiddie pool, and you're loving it. You're very happy there, very content. Your dad is in the big pool, and he calls you by name, and he invites you to come over and jump into the big pool. Now, hear me. This is where faith begins. Faith begins when you hear your dad speak, and he tells you what he wants you to do. You see, this is not your idea. You're content in the kiddie pool. You're quite happy in the one foot of water. You can walk around, you can splash around, you can swim in the kiddie pool. You're quite happy where you are. But your dad is in the big pool and he speaks and he invites you to go to where he is. So you go to the edge of the big pool and you look into the deep water and you want to jump in. But remember now, this doesn't make sense to you because you don't have swimmies. In fact, those haven't even been thought of yet, much less invented. And so you're, you look back at the kiddie pool. You can enjoy the kiddie pool. You feel safe there. And then you look at your dad and you want to jump into the water where he is. But you understand that if you jump into the water, it's over your head. Now listen to me. That's the way faith works. Faith is beyond reason. There's nothing reasonable about a four-year-old who can't swim, who jumps in water over his or her head. The reason will tell you, stay in the kiddie pool. Reason will tell you, it's safe here. Reason will tell you, this is where you belong. Stay in the kiddie pool. Faith says, jump into the big pool. That's over your head. Because, because your dad is calling you to. Now, in, we continue the story. You get out of the, kiddie, out of the kiddie pool, you go over to the edge of the big pool, and you stop, and you see your dad's arms extended out to you, and you want to go, and you want, you want to jump out, and you see your dad's arms, and finally you decide to jump. And in that moment... That moment of decision. Faith is anchored. Listen to this. Faith is anchored in your dad's ability to catch you rather than your ability to swim. In the arms of your father, in the deep water, you suddenly come to the realization that even though the water is over your head, it's not over his. That is the essence of of faith. And what I just told you, I'd like to show you in Scripture. In fact, every point I've made tonight in that little story, that little parable, I want to show you in Scripture. You know by now that in Hebrews chapter 11, we're introduced to some great heroes of the past who walked with God in the Old Testament days. Uh, and I, I may have put this on your notes. The chapter is not about a lot of great men and women who did great things for God. It's, it's about common, ordinary people who trusted God by faith. And so to help us understand what faith is, let's, let's go to Hebrews chapter 11, and we're going to be looking uh, starting, at verse, starting at verse 7. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. 
By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. Now, I hope that you've got an outline by now, and you can uh, follow along and fill in the blanks as we go. Here's the first thing I want to show you about faith tonight. Faith begins when God speaks. Faith begins when God speaks, or maybe you could put when you hear God speak. Now, this is so important, I don't want you to miss it. In fact, if you're asleep, wake up. Or if the person next to you is asleep, wake them up. Because here's what I want to make sure that you hear. Faith does not originate in your dreams. Faith begins to surface when God speaks. And until God speaks, faith by itself has no value for the believer. In fact, it can be dangerous. Faith is not about deciding to take a risk and you're going to just do something big for God and you're going to take this risk and you're going to do something incredible. Folks, a lot of times, listen to me, listen to me, a lot of times that's not faith, that's foolishness. Faith is not when you have a big idea and you're going to take a risk. Faith, listen to this, faith is a response to something God says to you. The dream starts with God, not with you. The idea originates in God's heart, not in your heart. You're in the kiddie pool. And the only reason you would get out of the kiddie pool is because you hear your heavenly father say, I want you to go into the deep water. It's not because you're in the kiddie pool and you think, I've got a good idea. So I want to make sure that you don't just get some grandiose idea. I'm going to do this big thing. I'm going to take this big risk. I'm going to, I'm going to just do something incredible. And God's not in it. God never told you to do it. So I want to make sure that you're doing what you do simply because you've heard God speak. Now, when you look at the men and women of Hebrews 11 who exercised great faith, it was in response to something that God told them to do. Look at verse 7 again. Noah is an example. The reason Noah did what, what he did was because God spoke to him. His faith, I'll say this more than once, his faith was a response to something God said. Look how it's described in verse 7. By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. Now it's very interesting when you read the story of Noah. Let's go to Genesis chapter 6 and we'll read that, that back story in Genesis chapter 6. This is, this is not the way it went. Noah did not wake up one day and said, You know, God, I'm thinking about building a boat. Always wanted a boat. I'm thinking about building a big one. In fact, I'm probably going to build the biggest boat around here. God, what do you think of it? And that's not the way it started at all. So let's see, see how it started. Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Does that sound familiar? If you were here last Sunday, I hope that sounds familiar to you. Do you hear that last phrase? And he walked with God. We'll come back to that. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 
And now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. How bad was it? Go back to to verse 5. Skip back for a moment. Same chapter, just look back at verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Man was so perverted, so evil, that every thought of his heart was only evil all the time. So we we continue on. Back in chapter 6, look at verse 13. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all the people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm, I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. And this is how you're to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. Skip on down for sake of time to verse 22. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. So we get this picture here that here's a man who decides to do something incredible, but it wasn't because he had an incredible idea. It was in response to what God told him. Now, I want you to go back and make sure you pick up on this. It says that Noah walked with God. It's in verse 9, the end of verse 9. Noah walked with God. If you were here last Sunday, do you remember anybody else that it was said he walked with God? Who was it? Enoch. And tell me who Enoch was in relation to Noah. Is there any connection there? Yes. Enoch was Noah's great-grandfather. If you weren't here, if you don't remember, there was Enoch, and, and, and he had a son named Methuselah. The oldest man who ever lived, and by the way, Methuselah probably died the year of the flood. So there was Enoch, there was Methuselah. Methuselah had a son, his name was Lamech. Lamech had a son, and his name was Noah. Now get this. It says about Enoch that Enoch walked with God, and God took him. He was no more. He didn't die. We talked about that last time. I'm not going to rehearse it again. But, but he walked with God. That's how he was known. He was known as a man who walked with God. Isn't it interesting that one, two, three generations later, his great-grandson is still walking with God? How important is it that you teach your children and your grandchildren to love God and to walk with God? It's extremely important. Because what the way that you live, the way that you live your life, can have an impact on the generations that follow you. The way that you live your life can have an impact on your son or your daughter, and it can have an impact on their children and their children. For generations, just because you live for God, just because you walk with God, it can have an impact three, four, five generations beyond you. I don't know about you, but I can't think of anything better than the fact that hopefully the spiritual heritage that started in James and Mildred Shorter because they did not come from Christian families. They were not Christians until after they got married. James and Mildred Shorter, my parents, became Christians and they passed on their faith. They showed me what it was like to walk with God. We're trying to do that as well. And now we've passed on our faith to our children and they're walking with God and in just three and a half weeks, Lord willing, we're going to have a grandbaby. 
And I'm hoping that that little girl is going to learn up, going to grow up learning what it means to walk with God. It is not by accident when God said, This world is so perverted, I'm going to destroy all of it, except there's one man, there's one family I'm going to spare. It's Noah, the great grandson of Enoch. I just want to encourage you, if I could tonight. It's wonderful when generation after generation after generation is faithful to God. You need to make sure you keep that that chain going. All right. So, what, what we're trying to establish here is that faith does not originate in our dreams for our lives. Faith is a response to God's plan for our lives. And, and the key verse that I want you to see is in chapter 6 of Genesis. Go, go back to verse 22. I just want you to notice this. You may even want to underline it. I'll tell you the phrase. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. I've, you might want to underline that. Just as God commanded him. You see, the essence of faith is this. I do what God tells me to do. That's the essence of faith. I do what God tells me to do. Noah did not base his faith on reason or explanations. He based his faith on his knowledge of God. Now the same is true about Abraham. Looking uh, back in Hebrews chapter 11, let's go back there for a moment. Hebrews chapter 11, going back there to verse 8, and now we're going to focus on a man named Abraham. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place, he would later receive as his inheritance. What's that next word? Yes, he obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. Obeyed and went. Obedience to what God says is evidence of genuine faith. You see, write this down. I don't know that there's a blank on your... uh, Let me see if there's a blank on your outline for this. I don't think there is. Okay, yeah, there is. When a person believes God, he or she does something. When a person believes God, he or she does something. That's true throughout the book of of Hebrews chapter 11. When they believe God, they obey. When they believe God, they start building. When they believe God, they start following. They start going to wherever God wants them to go. You see, faith faith is not saying, oh, I believe in God. Well, big deal. Faith is when I'm obeying God. How much do you believe God if you're not obeying Him? Does that make sense to anybody? If you're not willing to do what He says, if you're not willing to go where He says, if you're not willing to obey Him, then how much faith do you really have? Faith is not just a, a, an intellectual assent that, that I believe God and I always, I've got faith in God. No, you don't. Not real biblical faith. Faith is when you obey. Faith is when you respond. Hebrews 11, we're told that Abel offered a sacrifice. We're we're told that Noah built an ark. We're told that Abraham left his homeland. The people of Israel marched around the walls of of Jericho. God said, do this, and they did it. Diedrich Bonhoeffer said this. it's, It's a great statement. Diedrich Bonhoeffer said, 
I'm going to say it slowly because some of you will want to write it down. He said, only he who believes is obedient. And only he who is obedient believes. I'll say that again. Only he who believes is obedient, comma. And only he who is obedient believes. See, if our lives are void or empty of faith, as we talked about today, this morning, then our lives will also be void or empty of obedience. Faith is our response to what God is and what God says. All right, number two. And I may stop in a moment and see if you've got questions or comments. Number two. This is probably my favorite part of the study right here. Faith, number two. Faith is doing something beyond reason. Faith is doing something beyond reason. Going back to verse 7, Hebrews chapter 11. Going back to verse 7. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of righteousness that comes by faith. You know, you know what I'm convinced of, folks? I'm convinced that if we've grown up in church, and some of you have not, some of, this is kind of new to you, but for those of us who have grown up in church, we've grown up in Sunday school, we hear stories like this about Noah who built an ark, and we say, well, of course he did. He's Noah. You know? Of course he did. Can I give you a little perspective of Noah? Noah built an ark in the middle of a desert to protect his family from a flood when he's never even seen rain before. There wasn't enough water around him to float the boat, much less to destroy the world. He built an ark bigger than a football field in a desert when it had never rained before. That's what it's talking about when it it says, look in verse 7. By faith, Noah, look at this next phrase. When warned about things, what's that next phrase say? Not yet seen. No, I know you've never seen this before, but it's going to rain. It's going to rain a long time. And, it's, and the water's going to get really, really deep. In fact, I'm going to flood the world, and you're going to need to build an ark to save you and your family. You say, well, Pastor, how, how do you know it? it had never rained before? Well, go back with me. Put your finger in, in Hebrews 11, and, and go back with me to Genesis again. This time go to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 5. Genesis chapter 2. Let's see, let's just start in verse 4 for context. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when, when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens... Verse 5, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. The Lord God had not yet sent rain upon the earth. Now, you might debate that and say, well, that's just talking about prior to the fall, and later after the fall there, there was rain. But, 
but, but it doesn't appear to, when you really study Noah and you study Hebrews 11, it doesn't appear that, that they had ever experienced rain. There's another scripture that says that, that water came up from the ground, and that's how God watered the world at that time. Water came up out of the ground, kind of like an artesian well, and, and that's how God watered the, the world, was, was through the water under the ground. It would come up and, rather than water falling from the sky. And so just one more time, get this picture in your mind. Noah built a boat one and a half times the length of a football field. It was more than four stories high to protect his family from a flood, and he's never even seen a drop of rain. Can somebody explain this to me? Can somebody help me make sense of this? The only way I can make sense of it is this. You know what faith is? What's number two? Faith is what? Doing something beyond reason. From a human perspective, everything about what Noah was doing looked totally absurd. In fact, I'm convinced that people made fun of him for many, many years. And from a human perspective, everything that Noah was talking about sounded absolutely impossible. Faith by its very nature means that you're willing to do something that is beyond reason. And if it... By the way, if it was reasonable, you would not need faith. So we go back to Hebrews 11, and we, that was Noah. We want to look at Abraham doing a similar type thing, that is stepping out, doing something that was not reasonable. Uh, verse 8, By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went. That sounds fine. And then, then the writer adds this, even though he didn't know where he was going. No, he's a typical man. Of course he didn't know where he was going. Right? Most men don't know where... No, that's not, that's not the situation. Why did Abraham do something so unreasonable? Why did he take off leaving home, going to a land he had never seen, going in a direction he did not know where he was heading... Why was he doing this? It was so unreasonable. Because God had spoken. You see this phrase in verse 8, obeyed and went. God had spoken. And look, look at this. Uh, look at verse 8, the first part of verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when called to go, called to go, that's the only way to explain what he did. That's the only way to explain why he left. It's the only way to explain the decision that he made. It was, it was faith. Because God had spoken. Amy Carmichael, I think I put this on your notes. Uh, Amy Carmichael said this, and you can fill in the blank. Faith is not trusting God when we understand his way. There's no need for faith then. Faith is trusting when nothing is explained. Faith is trusting when nothing is explained. I want to ask you a question. I don't want you to answer it out loud. I do want you to think about it. What's the unreasonable thing that God has been asking you to do? And why are you hesitant? Well, because it's unreasonable. That might mean it's God. may not, but that might be a pretty good indication that God's asking you to do something by faith. 
So let's go to the third one. Let, let me stop right here. Do you have any comments? Sometimes you guys have better insights than I do, and you come up afterwards and you tell me about your insight, and I never give you a chance to share. So do you have any insights you want to share or questions you want to ask? All right, let's go to number three. My wife is in the nursery, and she would appreciate getting out early. All right, number three. Faith is anchored in God's ability, not your own. Faith is anchored in God's ability, not your own. We, we go to verse 9. By faith, talking about Abraham again, by faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Abraham trusted in God's provision, verses 9 and 10. And he also trusted in God's promise, verse 11. You see, I'm not an expert at this, but here's what I found. Whenever God speaks and tells you what he wants to do, what he wants you to do, it's a crucial moment where you have to decide if you will trust in his ability or in yours. It's a crucial moment when you have to decide if you'll trust in his ability or in yours. This story just, just has come to my mind. I'm going to share it. Some of you have heard it. Some of you have heard it more than once. And some of you will probably say, man, I'm tired of hearing that story. All right. But some of you have never heard it. And maybe you need to. Uh, one of the times, I've been thinking lately about some of those times when I really stepped out in faith. Those times when I really did something unreasonable those times when I really just decided to trust in God's ability rather than mine. One of those times was in regard to going to seminary. This part of the story I don't think I've ever told. The church I used to pastor, Crestview Baptist Church, first church I pastored, uh, I told the, the leadership that I, I felt led of the Lord to, to get my doctorate and to, that I needed to go to New Orleans. I was pastoring in North Carolina, but I needed to get my doctorate in New Orleans and New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. They were all for it. They supported it. And they wanted to take money from our cooperative program giving because as, as a church we gave a high percentage and they said, Pastor, we've got a good idea. If you'll let us, we want to reduce the cooperative program giving and pay for your education. We'll pay for it all. Can I be honest with you? I've never told anybody this story. Can I, can I be honest with you? I was really tempted. I mean, I was really, really, really tempted. Because part of the cooperative program giving it, it covers education in colleges and seminaries, and, and we kind of rationalize, the deacons and myself, we kind of rationalize, well, we're covering, you know, we're covering my expenses. We're, uh, if you gave a cooperative program, you'd help me uh, get my doctorate, or you could just pay directly. If you pay directly, then I don't have to pay anything, you know. It, it, it sounded like a good deal. I got real, real convicted about it, and, and I, long story short, I, I turned it down. I said, we will not cut cooperative programs. We will not take the missionaries' money. We will not do God will provide. I'm here to tell you to, that 
We didn't have the money for that. Somehow, somehow God provided every semester, every time when I needed the money, it was there. And I never one time went to ask anybody for anything. The second half of that story was when I went for the first, when I went for the very first orientation down to New Orleans. I found out that they had satellite campus in Atlanta. And I thought, well, glory to God. See, he's already providing. I can get to Atlanta a lot cheaper and a lot quicker than I can to New Orleans. But then I found out that the Atlanta Extension Center did not offer a doctorate in evangelistic church growth. They only offered a doctorate in pastoral ministry. And Dr. Chuck Kelly told me, When I found out about it, he said, you've got until tomorrow morning to decide which way you want to go. I stayed awake most that night, sitting on my bed in my motel room by myself in the dark, praying and crying and praying and crying because I didn't want to get a doctor in a pastoral ministry. I I felt uh, felt led to get a doctor in evangelistic church growth. And I remember sitting in the darkness... I remember sitting in the darkness praying and telling the Lord, makes a lot more sense to go to Atlanta. Financially, it'll be more feasible to go to Atlanta. And it was as if the Lord said to me, but that's not what I've called you to do. I've called you to come to New Orleans and get a doctorate in evangelistic church growth. And I said, I don't have money for that. He said, but I do. So I went the next morning and I went to Dr. Kelly and I said, I'm going to stay in New Orleans. I'm going to get my doctorate here. Long story short, I not only went to to New Orleans once a month for three and a half years, with the exception of summer. We got summer off, but... I would go to New Orleans, from North Carolina to New Orleans, once a month for two to three days at a time. I thought I was going to have to drive. I flew every time. And this was back in the days before the Internet, and you had to get a travel agent to get an airplane ticket. When I'd go into the travel agent to get my my monthly ticket, I remember the lady looked at me one time. She said, you must have connections, because every time you get ready to get a ticket, the fares drop. (laughs) She said, I've never seen anything like it. I said, yeah, I, I kind of got some connections. <laughs> I tell you all of that for one reason. Not to say, look how great our pastor is. Isn't he wonderful? No. I tell you all that for one reason. Look how great God is. And what he was asking me to do was not reasonable. What he was asking me to do... I couldn't do. I didn't have the ability. I didn't have the funds. But faith is anchored in God's ability, not in our ability. Faith is anchored in God's finances, not in our finances. I love what Beth Moore said, and I put this on your notes. Beth Moore said, faith is what happens when believers believe. (laughs) That's pretty good. Faith is what happens when believers believe. 
You see, the real question is this. Are you willing to trust in God's provision? Are you willing to trust in God's promise? Are you willing to trust in God's power? The heart of faith is my willingness to trust in what God can do rather than in what I can do. Somebody said this. They said, you don't trust God until you trust Him for the impossible. You're not really trusting God until you trust Him for the impossible. The real question that we all end up wrestling with at some time at another, sometime or another is this one. Put this on the bottom of your notes. We're almost done. The real question we all end up wrestling with at some time or, or another is this one. How far will you go in trusting God? How far will you go in trusting God? I will tell you how far Noah went. He built an ark in the middle of the desert when he didn't have any rain. I will tell you how far Abraham went. He left his home and his, the extended family and started walking toward a land not knowing where he was going. How far will you go in trusting God? Maybe God has been dealing with you lately about jumping into the deep water. And it might be that you're perfectly content in the kiddie pool. It's safe there. It's fun there. It's comfortable there. You can handle the kiddie pool all by yourself. You don't even need swimmies in the kiddie pool. You've resisted God because that leap of faith that he's asking you to take is scary. But that's your problem. Everybody listen to me. Everybody listen to me. Let me tell you what your problem is. For some of you, you're focusing on the leap instead of on the God who is asking you to take the leap. There's a big difference. See, New Orleans, when I was going to New Orleans, I was focusing on how much it was going to cost me rather than focusing on the God who is asking me to go there. Now, I know you've got a plan. I know that you've got to be wise stewards. I understand all of that. But there comes a time when, when God calls you out of the kiddie pool into the deep water, and the question is not, is it over my head? The question is, is it over his head? I love what Howard Hendricks said. He said, there is no such thing. This is good. This is, this is so Howard Hendricks. He said, there is no such thing as a correspondence course for swimming. He said, if you want to swim, you've got to get in the pool. Faith can't be exercised by proxy. It requires that you get wet. Last thing I'll tell you is Ron Hutchcraft said that early in his ministry, I want everybody just to hear this. This is so perfect. Ron Hutchcraft said that early in his ministry, God called a dedicated young woman from a lucrative job with one of the most prestigious modeling firms in the world to join him in his ministry to rescue the lost. All right, so, so here's the situation. God's called this dedicated young woman. She's got this lucrative job, prestigious modeling firm. She's going to leave that to go to this, this fledgling ministry. On the job application, under the reason for leaving that dream job, she simply wrote one word. Jesus. Jesus. 
That's the reason you go. That's the reason you obey. That's the reason you do that which is not reasonable. That which doesn't add up. That which makes no sense. Put on our application. The only reason I'm doing this. Jesus. By faith. Noah, when warned about things not yet seen in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. They both learned that God is trustworthy. They both learned that God can meet your needs. They both learned the value of getting out of the kiddie pool and jumping in the deep water. Let's pray. Father, for most of us, these stories are just old Bible stories. Noah, Abraham. We've heard them all of our lives. But I pray that during this week, we'd begin to get drawn back to those old stories of men who just walked by faith, men who did the unreasonable, men who decided to trust in your ability rather than theirs, men who obeyed not because they had a big idea, but because they heard you speak. Continue to speak to our hearts and may we be obedient. May we demonstrate our faith, not by our words, but by our, our obedience. We ask it in Christ's name.